So turn to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our study through the Word of God. Um, we are going to start, starting today, make a couple of little minor changes. I wanted to just highlight you uh, to those changes. Uh, one of those changes, when we read the Word of God together, um, uh, sometimes uh, people either online or uh, even here in the room may not have a Bible. We do have Bibles in case you don't have one this morning that we can get you. There should be some on the table right behind that post right there. Um, there's also some right outside the double door, so if you, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand and we will get you a Bible. But we also are going to put the scripture that I'm reading through up on the screen as well, just for people to follow along in case you don't have a Bible or uh, in case you may have a different translation than the one we're using, which happens to be the New King James. The other um, minor change we're going to make uh, Pastor Mitch and I were talking this week, as we often do, just sit and talk and, you know, what is the Lord doing and what is he stirring in our hearts? And um, if, if you've ever been to or been a part of a traditional church, of one that passes the plate, so to speak, the offering plate, uh, you'll know that one of the things they do there, that the, 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 the process of giving is kind of woven into worship. And a part of what they do is they pray for their offerings, and uh, as we were talking about that, Mitch pointed out to me, you know, we, we seem to neglect praying for the offerings and after asking for the Lord's blessing, and it just struck me like a ton of bricks. It's like, yeah, you're, you're right. We've never done that. So we're not going to start passing the plate. Uh, the giving box is back there, but we are going to start just praying and asking the Lord's blessing each week on the uh, offerings that he brings to us. Uh, this is not a, a veiled attempt to ask for money. This is just, you know, we want to ask the Lord's blessing on everything that we do. So I just wanted to highlight those two things to you before we get into this study this morning. So we are in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, and we are going to read all the way down to verse 38 because I want us to get in the flow of what's happening this morning as we get into the study together. So if you were there, let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. 
And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus went out went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Lord, we ask your blessing blessing on the reading of your word, on our time together to study. We pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign to move among us this morning, to bring your word, your truth to us as a congregation, as a church as well, as individually, the things that we need to hear that we're seeking you for today. And lastly, Lord, we ask that you would bring your blessing upon the many gifts and offerings that are given to this church on a weekly basis. We're so thankful for you because we know that all things come from your hand. And thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are working our way through Matthew. And here in chapter 9, as we had left, of course, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, now we've begun to get into sort of the heart of the ministry of Jesus. And we've been seeing him do amazing things, miracles, healings, uh, all sorts of things. And he's doing all of these things to prove that he is the Messiah, to authenticate that he is truly God. And as he's doing these things, people are having questions, just as we might have if we gave a Bible to someone who doesn't know Christ. And we said, hey man, just start reading in the Gospels, and they start reading And they wonder, is this stuff real? Is it true? Could it be that someone like this man Jesus could do the things that this man have done? And the answer is absolutely yes. We believe 100% in the the inerrant inspiration of the Word of God. We believe that these things are true. Uh, They are not symbolic. They are not, this is not a fictional story made up about someone that we might glean spiritual truths from. This really happened with Jesus. In fact, the other Gospels often have parallel or similar accounts of the same story, and if you're keeping tabs this morning for this section that we've just read in Matthew 9, 18 through 26, for this first section here, the parallel accounts are found in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. And in those accounts, they give us some additional detail. In fact, Mark and Luke's accounts are considerably longer than Matthew's account in this particular situation. So I would encourage you to go there and to read Mark and Luke's accounts. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. But we learn some interesting things uh, about this story that we've just read here. Uh, If your Bible may have a heading there, a girl restored to life and a woman healed, there's this scenario happening in this day as Jesus is 
uh, moving about and walking around and people are coming to him with their issues, with their health issues, with their spiritual issues, with blindness, with all sorts of things uh, that we're going to encounter today. And so while Jesus was saying these things, a synagogue official, and we're told in the other Gospels that this man's name was Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, uh, Jairus came to, to find Jesus. Now the other Gospel accounts say that when Jairus came, his daughter had not yet died. And as he came, he said, my daughter is dying. She's in the process of dying. She's close to death. Uh, Matthew seems to kind of, kind of speed ahead and get to the point. And he says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Either way, as this man came, he took a great risk because there's a backstory to everyone. You see, this man was a ruler of the synagogue. He, he likely was not a, a scribe or a Pharisee, but each synagogue had a ruler. That is a person who would take care of that facility, and their responsibility was to take care of the scrolls to set up the synagogue uh, appropriately, to administrate the offerings, to make sure the poor received a portion from those offerings each week, to make sure that if there were any rabbis passing through, that they were honored and asked to come and to speak at the weekly synagogue service. So the ruler of the synagogue was kind of like the coordinator or the administrator of the facility uh, and over the services. Now, it's interesting that this man, Jairus, his name means Jehovah enlightens, which is sort of a theme for what's about to happen. So Jairus comes, according to the other accounts, and says, my daughter is sick. She's about to die. And certainly you can understand that if you had a child that was that sick, that was on the verge of death, you would do pretty much anything you could, wouldn't you, to try and save your child's life? The interesting thing here is that Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue, means that he not only probably knew about Jesus, knew who he was and what he was doing, but he was taking a great risk to his own personal reputation to come and seek the help of Jesus because as that time, at that time, the jury was very much out on who Jesus was and what he was doing. They didn't really know if he was really the Messiah, and certainly the scribes and the Pharisees were starting to spread the word, we're not so sure about this guy. He seems to be claiming to be God. We're going to have to listen more closely. We're, we're very skeptical about who he is. But Jairus isn't skeptical, and as he comes, it would seem to him that the risk is worth it to come to Jesus, to open his heart to Jesus, and to say, basically, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. Where can I go? So I'm coming to you. And we're told here that this ruler came and worshipped him. What that means is he bowed down before him. He, he literally fell on his face before him. So when he came to Jesus, he didn't just come and say, Hey, Jesus, come over here to the side for a moment. I want to ask you something. He came in a very public manner. Remember, Jesus was in this crowd of people. And as he was there in this ruler of the synagogue, who was likely a very well-known person from that area, came and worshipped him. He fell down before Jesus. So this man was worshipping in the eyes of the onlookers another man. He fell down at the feet of, of Jesus and began to worship him. And as he made his request, he says, you know, she's, she's about to die and 
Uh, We're told in the other Gospels that while this whole thing was taking place, as they begin to move along and then they run into the woman who had the issue of blood or the flow of blood or the hemorrhage, that in that moment, uh, the the rulers, uh, someone from his house came and said, don't bother Jesus, she's died. So again, Luke is kind of just taking it to its conclusion. So this man comes, he worships Jesus, he knows who he is, he gives him his honor and his due. He humbles himself and he, he put himself out there because everybody saw it. And so Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. So Jesus is now turning and making his way to his house. Now imagine yourself, as again, as the parent of this child, you want to kind of move things along a little bit, right? You think of our modern day world with, with ambulances, right? It'd be like, uh, I just pulled over an ambulance. I jumped and I said, quick, go to my house. Let's get there, you know, turn on the siren, get everybody out of the way. We've got to get there very quickly. So as they begin to make their way, we're told in verse 20, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Now, the, the little girl was 12 years old, we're told, in the other Gospels. This woman had this hemorrhage, this flow of blood for 12 years. Is there anything significant to the 12 years? I don't know. But I do know that for 12 years, this little girl was born and was being raised, and she grew up, and she came to this point in her life, this poor child at 12 years old, contracted some disease or a fever or something that was taking her life. And this, this woman, and we get the sense that perhaps she was getting on in years, we're not told exactly, but now she has this hemorrhage going on for 12 years. Now think about the medical technology available today versus then. How do you deal with this, this flow of blood, this hemorrhage? And as she had this flow of blood, we're told in the Old Testament that anyone who had a situation like this would have been declared unclean. Now keep in mind the two situations. Jairus came publicly in the crowd, up front, loud uh, for everyone to see, and bowed down before Jesus. This woman is basically coming in the back door. She's sneaking up from behind Jesus. And again, the other gospels give us a great detail on what happened. And it says, she came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. The other accounts tell us that she had spent all of her money on doctors, that she had tried everything. She had just, every route that, she, was, that was humanly known, she tried it. And now she comes with a similar kind of faith as this man, Jairus, whose, whose faith was very out front and active, coming and falling down before Jesus and worshiping him and making a public proclamation and asking for all to hear, would you come to my house and please lay your hand on my daughter and heal her? This woman coming with her faith in a very passive and quiet way, coming from behind, probably because she feared the stigma of violating Jesus because she was unclean, like a leper, except the lepers had to shout, of course, that they were unclean as they approached the crowd. This woman didn't have to shout unclean, but everyone knew if they knew her that she wasn't allowed to go worship. She couldn't go to synagogue. She had this issue. She was declared unclean according to Leviticus 15. She was not allowed to be with people. And here she is taking a great risk. No doubt she probably had her head and her face all covered and she was trying to be as incognito as possible. And she said to herself in verse 21, 
If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. So in her mind, in her heart, this is what she was thinking. And we can learn a lot about what this woman was thinking because her thoughts were correct. She had faith. She was thinking about how can I draw near to Jesus? How can I come close to him? He's the only one who can possibly help me. Jairus's act was public. Her act was private. If I may only touch his garment, the other uh, accounts, uh, Mark and Luke, tell us that she wanted to touch the hem of his garment. And we are told in the Old Testament that all of the males were to, to sew tassels onto their garment, fringes. And that was for all generations from young to old. And it was to be a ribbon of blue. And when they saw that ribbon in their own garment or in the garments of others, they were to look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that they were to be holy unto their God. That was what the Old Testament said about that little blue tassel or those tassels that were sewn around the fringe of the garment. Now, every male from 12 years old and up wore this on their garments. But why would she want to touch this man's tassels? Why would she want to touch the things that are sewn onto his garment? No doubt because she knew that the blue border on this garment was true and authentic. She knew in her heart that if I touch that one, I will be made well because he is holy. He is righteous. I know I shall be made well. She took a great risk because in her touching Jesus, she would, according to the law, make him unclean. Now, the traditions of the Jews at that time said a woman like this, who had this particular issue, was being judged by God for her sin. That was the reason she had this condition. That's why she had this disease. And they often thought it was because she was sexually active outside of marriage, and that's what brought the judgment of God upon her and caused this problem. Now again, Jairus, he came in a public way. He, he stood up. He was a man. He came sort of forward in the front door. This woman coming up from behind, she's anemic. She's been bleeding for 12 years continually. She's weak. Her hemoglobin is, is bad, according to what we would know today. She probably, with all of her strength, reached out her hand to touch the hem of his garment. Now, the hem of his garment was where? It was down next to the ground. How do you sneak through a crowd and get close to someone to reach out and touch their shoulder? Okay, but to get low enough to touch the hem of the garment... You see, there was a bit of uh, public to what she was doing as well. So she comes up behind Jesus and she, she sneaks up and maybe she pretended to drop something. Who knows? And she comes up behind Jesus just to touch his garment. But in her, in her heart, in her mind, she's thinking, I know when I touch it, I'm going to be made well. I know this issue is going to be resolved. But Jesus turned around. It says in the other Gospels again, Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute, who touched me? Who touched my garment? Jesus knew someone touched his garment even though he didn't know who. And now the disciples said, now, Lord, come on, don't be ridiculous. You're in a crowd of people. People are bumping into you all the time. How can you possibly want to know who touched you? I mean, and he said, no, 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 this was different. 
This one, I felt power, I felt virtue flow out from me. The Greek word is dunamis. I felt power leave me when this woman touched the hem of my garment. Now, he didn't know who it was, but he turned around and he's looking. He's like, who touched me? Somebody touched me. And it was a different kind of touch. It wasn't just the people bumping into him or the people patting him on the back. Yeah, I go, Jesus. That was awesome. That miracle you did just a few minutes ago, that was great. You know, patting him. They were just like all over him. And he's like, no, somebody touched me with faith. Now, the thing to keep in mind here, Jesus is doing what? He's on his way to Jairus' house. And he stops because he's been interrupted. I don't want us to miss this. Jesus has already been interrupted. I mean, his day is constantly filled with interruptions, isn't it? How do we respond when we're interrupted? Good? Everybody excited about that? Yay, an interruption? But you see, Jesus was never interrupted, was he? He always had time for people. No matter what the problem was, what the issue was, you see, he wasn't interrupted. And so he turns around and he finds this woman and they they connect. And in that moment, it it tells us that she knew she had been found out. Now, she's in this crowd of people. She probably could have slid away. But we're also told in the other accounts that in that moment when she touched him, it says she knew in that moment, she felt it in her body that she was healed. What an amazing thing that must have been for her. And then for Jesus to turn around. Now, this is very quick, right? She reaches down, touches the hem of her, his garment. In that moment, she's healed. The power of Jesus somehow transfers to her through the tassel of his garment. She's healed. Jesus says, wait a minute, somebody touched me, and it was a different kind of touch. I felt power go out of me, and he's trying to figure out who it is. And now they connect. And she comes forward and she says, Lord, it was me. You know, basically, I'm so sorry. I, I should have asked. I, you know, she's all humbled. And Jesus looks at her and he says, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, I want to say something about that. You know, people like to make a big deal sometimes, especially faith healers, about, you know what, the reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. Well, remember in last week's story, the four friends who brought the paralytic to Jesus, and they tore open the roof and let him down, and we're told very clearly in that story, that man, the paralytic, is not the one who had the faith, it was his four friends who had the faith. So for people to say, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith, I don't think that's biblical. Now, this woman had faith and she was made well, but there are other examples as we read through what Jesus did. There are people who had no faith and Jesus still healed them. Remember the, 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 the other ruler who came, he needed his servant healed. And he said, just speak the word, Lord, and my servant will be healed. I'm sh- who, we're not told anything about the faith of the servant, but the, 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 the ruler came and he had faith. Now, faith is involved, and perhaps we need to be people who are praying for and believing for others on their behalf that God might touch them and do something, but it says here, Jesus looked at her, 
And he says, your faith has made you well. Now, as we think about our story, let's, let's kind of stay in the context of what's happening. Remember, Jesus had given the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the day, the evening, Jesus said, we're going to get in the boat. We're going to the other side. Remember, as they were crossing the lake, that storm came up. And the, the, the disciples thought they were going to die. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him up. And before Jesus rebuked the storm, what did he say to his disciples? He rebuked their weak faith. He says, where's your faith? Right? And they get over to, to the other side of the lake, and then he encounters the, the men, the, the demon-possessed men who had legion. He heals them. He casts out those demons. And then the people come, and they say, get away from us. Leave us. Uh, you're messing up what's going on here. Our life was fine before you showed up, Jesus. And then he gets in the boat and goes back over. Now he's gotten out of the boat here in Matthew 9, and things are happening he forgave and healed a paralytic. Matthew was called. Uh, Jesus was questioned about fasting. We talked about all this last week, and he's, he's moving through, and things are happening. And now, all of a sudden, here is this woman, and he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus never called anybody else daughter, and that's a term that a father would speak to a daughter. That's not a common term, like, you know, we throw around a term, hey, girl, People didn't just walk around saying, hey, daughter. Jesus said this to her as God, speaking to her in a very close, personal, intimate way. She was a daughter of the faith. She was a daughter of the Father. Now, I imagine as this is happening, as Jairus is standing over there like this, kind of going, I don't know. Man, it was tight. We were cutting it close when I came, Lord. My, what about my daughter? You're calling her daughter. What about my daughter, Lord? Come on, we got to go. And while he's standing there, most likely impatient, we don't know, a servant comes from his house and he says, I'm sorry, she's gone. Don't bother the master anymore. Don't, don't bother the teacher. Just let, let's go. Let's get out of here. So Jesus has healed this woman. This woman was made well. He healed her body. He healed her reputation. He healed her heart. You see, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but faith in a strong Savior. It's not our faith that saves us. It's, the, it's, it's faith in a strong Savior. You see, Jesus saves. Even in the weakness of our faith, and whether we have strong faith or weak faith or no faith, Jesus can still save. The use of the words of a good old writer were, she came trembling and went back triumphing. Let us store up in our minds this story. It may perhaps help us mightily in some hour of need. Our faith may be feeble. Our courage may be small. Our grasp of the gospel and its promises may be weak and trembling. But after all, the grand question is, do we really trust in Christ alone? Do we look to Jesus and only to Jesus for pardon and for peace? If this be so, it is well. If we may not touch his cloak, we can touch his heart. Such faith saves the soul. Weak faith is less comfortable than strong faith, but weak faith will still carry us to heaven, albeit with far less joy than a full assurance of faith. Weak faith gives an interest in Christ as surely as a strong faith. He that only touches the hem of Christ's cloak shall never perish.
You know, sometimes we think because our faith is weak that, you know, we're at the end. We should just give up. But this woman didn't give up, did she? She came and she touched the hem of his garment. Jairus came and asked for help. So now Jesus turns and he continues the journey. And we are told in the other gospel accounts that when the servant came to Jairus and said, don't bother the master any longer, she's dead. Jesus turned to him in that moment to rebuke what the man said. And he says, don't worry, don't listen to him. She's just asleep. So when Jesus came into the ruler's house, so he made the trip, he got there. He saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. Now, when someone died in Israel in that day, they were put in the tomb that same day. You see, there was no calling uh, the morgue to come and pick up the body. There was no embalming going on. They believed that the person had to get put in the grave right away because the decay would start almost immediately on the body. The law even says that there had to be at least two flute players and one singer whenever someone died. And so these people were basically at attention and always on call, sort of like the fire department, sort of like the EMTs. So when they found out someone in their town or their city had died, they immediately went and began the mourning process. They weren't invited. Sometimes they were hired. But they would come, and they would immediately begin this process of mourning. They would play a dirge. They would play this somber music, and the people were professional wailers, professional criers. And so these people had already arrived, and the mourning process had begun. And no doubt, they're waiting for the father to come so that they can take the girl and go put her in the tomb. So when Jesus came, he saw all of this. He said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And in that moment, again, the other gospel accounts make this perfectly clear. These people almost schizophrenically went from wailing and crying and all these things to laughing and saying, what? No, because she's dead. Man, we've been in there. She's dead. Come on. What do you mean she's sleeping? You're a fool. So they're saying these things to Jesus, but... Again, we're told in the other accounts that, as we're told here in verse 25, when the crowd was put outside, the other account said, Jesus put them outside. Jesus cast them out because they were taking away from what he wanted to do. They were the detractors. They were the naysayers. They didn't have faith. And Jesus cast out those who didn't have faith to believe in him so that he could do what he was wanting to do. Now, along the way, this man, I imagine, uh, probably went through a range of emotions. As he first went to get Jesus, and then while he was there waiting uh, with the woman, uh, as Jesus was taking time with her. And one commentator said this about that, we must learn to trust Christ and his promises no matter how we feel. No matter what others say, and no matter how the circumstances may look. The servant came and said, she's dead. Jesus said, she's not. They got to the man's house. The wailers were saying she was dead. Jesus said, no, she's sleeping. She's not dead. And Jesus made this interesting statement here in verse 24. He said, make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. 
That means give place. Make room for me to work. I think the question should be asked of myself as well as for all of us. Have we made room? Have we given place for Jesus to work in our lives? Or have we squeezed him out? Have we believed the voices of the, the detractors? You know, there's a beautiful story in the book of Nehemiah as Nehemiah by faith was trying to be obedient to the Lord and uh, he felt that God had put a burden on his heart to go back to Jerusalem and restore and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem after the 70-year captivity. And as he uh, had uh, gotten permission from the king and he went back and he, he began to do the work, there were people who came, there were detractors, there was Sanballat and Tobiah, if you've read the story, and there were others who came and they said, you know, if, if your wall is so feeble, your construction techniques are so terrible that if a little fox ran on the wall, the, the stones would fall away. And they began to just kind of be the people who were the hecklers in the crowd, and they just began to shout things and to tell Nehemiah that he was a fool for doing what he was doing, and he shouldn't be wasting his time. But Nehemiah had to turn around and tell himself and the people, don't listen to them. And in the same manner, Jesus had to do that here for these people. You see, she's sleeping. I don't know if you know this, but cemetery, the word cemetery means sleeping place. Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. And so often in the Bible, especially the New Testament, it speaks of believers as sleeping, not dead. Because you see, for believers in Christ, when we die, our body may be dead. But our spirit is with God in heaven. Our soul goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this so clearly, 1 Corinthians 15 and other places. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, we're just sleeping until the time, until the day when the resurrection takes place and the dead in Christ shall rise first and those who remain or are alive shall rise with them and meet the Lord in the air and then we will get our resurrection bodies. Again, Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians 15. And so Paul, uh, Paul understood that, but now Jesus is here trying to, to teach these people the same thing. She's just sleeping. And Jesus is saying, I have the ability, I have the power to wake her up. She's not dead. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And she was healed. She was raised from the dead. And it says, and the report of this went out into all the land. Jesus healed and or raised up Jairus' daughter here in this story. He raised up the widow Nain's son. And then later he resurrected Lazarus, who was the brother of Martha and Mary in John chapter 11. There were only three times that Jesus resurrected someone from the dead. But see, he said, they're sleeping. And he wanted these people to know, as he wants us to know today, Jesus has authority over death. You see, we're all going to die, right? Unless we're caught up in the air to meet the Lord if he comes back during our lifetime and we're caught up in that glorious event called the rapture of the church. But until then, we're going to die. And the question always is, the most important question for every single human being on the face of the planet, do you know Christ? 
Have you been saved by the blood of Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Because, that, see, that's what determines, will you be with the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you be accepted by God on that day when you stand before his throne, or will you be judged? It's the blood of Christ that cleanses and saves us from all of our sin. And so Jesus said, this little girl's just sleeping. She's okay. And so he raised her up. Now as the story continues, as if that wasn't enough, between healing the woman with the hemorrhage, the issue of blood for 12 years, her issue was her bleeding. The issue of the father, Jairus, who came, was that his daughter was about to die, and indeed she did die. But now he encounters other men, two blind men, in fact, in verse 27, who have different issues. Their issues were blindness. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now for them to say those words, they were using a distinctly messianic term from the Old Testament. They were crying out to Jesus, and they were saying, when they said, Son of David, they were, they were literally shouting, Messiah, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, it would seem, uh, this account here, he is taking these men aside. So everything, all this other stuff had been done publicly. And then remember, Jesus went into the house to heal the little girl and he cast everyone out. Then he just had the parents. And then we're told in the other gospels, he had Peter, James, and John. So Jesus demonstrated his power to this small group of people. Now he takes these two blind men who no doubt were well known in the area because they were blind. And they always had to have someone to lead them about. And as they cried out saying, son of David, have mercy on us. There were likely people around saying, shh, don't bother Jesus, man. What are you guys doing? Be quiet. What do you mean by shouting that? And then they shouted louder. Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, he came with these blind men. He pulled them aside. And he said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And I imagine that they... To fill in the gap a little bit, maybe they said, that's why we called you son of David. Yes, we believe who you are. And Jesus, it says, touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. You see, Jesus does respond to faith. These two men had no eyesight, but they had great insight, didn't they? They knew who Jesus was. Isn't it interesting? They were... Uh, visually impaired. They were blind, yet just with their ears. You see, they didn't have to see the miracles. They heard the miracles. They believed what they heard. Their ears were connected to their heart. So often, that's not the case with us, isn't it? That our ears are connected to our heart. These men believed. They said, yes, Lord. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Absolutely. No question. And then Jesus proved his willingness. According to your faith, let it be. And he touched their eyes. And then it says in verse 30, and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it, but like so often is the case when you've been touched by Jesus, when he's eradicated your issues, it's hard to be quiet. And these men couldn't be quiet. They went out and they told everybody what Jesus had done to them. And while their condition was literal, physical blindness, 
Again, let's not miss the opportunity. Blindness is, blindness is a picture of spiritual ignorance and unbelief. The sinner must be born again before he can see the things of God. And the believer must be careful to grow spiritually or he will damage his spiritual vision. You say, what do you mean? Where did that come from? In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, listen to what Peter says about our growth as it relates to our vision. 2 Peter 1.5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, listen, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, Peter is saying very plainly, if you're not growing, if you're not progressing in your walk with the Lord and in your faith and your relationship with Jesus You are lacking and you are short-sighted, perhaps even slipping back into spiritual blindness. Their eyes were opened. Have your eyes been opened? Our position may be trying. Our hearts may be weak. The world may be difficult to journey through. Our faith may seem too small to carry us home. But let us take courage when we think on Jesus and not be cast down. Greater is he that is for us than all those who are against us. Our Savior can raise the dead. Our Savior is almighty. And didn't John write down, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, recording the words of Jesus? But when they departed, they spread the news about Jesus to everywhere. Then in this next situation, Jesus has a very busy day. He encounters a man who is a mute man, meaning he can't speak. And we're told here in this story, beginning in verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. Now, last time we saw in our story that someone was demon-possessed, those men were very vocal. The demons were screaming and crying out through this man's voice. Remember the the demoniacs and the Gadarenes, they would cry out so loud at night that people had to put their hands over their ears that there was this horrible shriek going on all night as these men were in the caves and they were tormented by the demons. Here, this man is silent. These demons made him silent. They made him quiet. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. You see, they knew the man was quiet, they knew he was mute, they knew he couldn't speak, but they didn't know why. But as is always the case with Jesus, he dealt with the root issue. And I doubt anyone knew that this man was demon-possessed, but Jesus knew it. He could see straight through to the heart of the issue. And so as Jesus did this, now this is the way Matthew writes this, this is almost in these two or three verses, this is almost like, yeah, Jesus cast a demon out of a guy. And he kept going. Mandat to that man. We're not told how long that man was afflicted by those demons or this demon. And Jesus cast this demon out and the man could finally speak. You see, 
Jesus took care of this man's issue. What was his issue? He was demon-possessed. He was in the grip of Satan, literally. And Satan had taken away his voice. And Jesus gave his voice back. And he cast out the demon so that this man could worship God. But it's interesting how the Pharisees, and again, the other accounts give a a better uh, insight into this. The Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus got a little bit impatient with them in the other accounts, and he, he questioned them, and he said, oh, okay, so how can a house to be divided against itself? How can Satan cast out Satan? This doesn't make any sense. Your logic doesn't even make sense. How can that be? How can God, excuse me, how can Satan cast out Satan? You're, you, have, have you been following me? Have you seen what's happened? Have you seen the little girl who was healed? Have you seen this woman whom you all know for 12 years had this issue? You yourselves declared her unclean, and now you're here saying, I'm doing this by the works of Satan? This doesn't even make sense. It does not compute. But that's where the Pharisees were headed, right? They wanted to convict Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. They wanted to condemn Jesus. They wanted to cast Jesus out of their town the way the people of the Gadarenes did. You see, Jesus was getting too close. He was proving who he was. He was revealing the fact that he was God. He was the Messiah. In verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. I mean, this is like a blanket statement, right? We're not even given the accounts of all the things that Jesus encountered. Teaching, preaching, preaching the gospel, healing every sickness, every disease. I mean, if that were happening today, don't you think you'd be following Jesus? Don't you think you'd be looking for him to touch you and to heal you of all of your issues, of all of your infirmities? It says that Jesus was teaching and that he was preaching. Let's not miss the distinction. Teaching is often defined as explanation. Preaching is often defined as proclamation. And certainly both are needed, both are necessary. We need to teach the scriptures, teach the word of God. We need to explain them and give the sense and the understanding. But we also need to preach. Preaching has a sense of exhortation, calling people to action, calling people to follow Christ, calling people to follow the Lord and to have faith. And it says in verse 36, but when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because here's how he saw them. They were weary, they were scattered, and they were like sheep having no shepherd. Now in the Old Testament, so many times, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Lord spoke to the shepherds of Israel and he said, you're not my shepherds. You're supposed to be my shepherds, but you're not. You're not taking care of the people. All you care about is yourself. All you care about is your own things, but you don't care about the people. One who is called a shepherd is called to shepherd the sheep, and the sheep are the people of Israel, the, the people of God. And Jesus saw these people, and he realized the religious institutions are doing nothing. The scribes and the Pharisees, the synagogues, this is supposed to be the house of God. Remember, Jesus had to twice cleanse the house of God and say, you've made it a house of merchandise. Instead, it should be a house of prayer for all nations. 
You've taken over the court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be the place that they can come and find entry to the kingdom of God instead. You've kicked them out and made it the place where you can make money. You're extorting people. There were no shepherds. It's interesting, the word, you know, we have words in the Bible for elders and for bishops and for deacons. But the word for shepherd is the word poimen, which means to shepherd, to care for people. And so Jesus looked at the people. They were weary, they were scattered, they were like sheep having no shepherd. And then he turned to his disciples and here's what he said. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, this is the perfect missionary text, isn't it? I've heard missionaries speak on this for so often, and truly it should be, but you understand that this was Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now, if you know Christ this morning, you're a disciple. These words are for you and me. They're not just for those who have a unique and a special calling to sell everything and go to the mission field somewhere. You see, there's a harvest everywhere. We need people here in this community, in this church, in this region, doing what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Truer words have never been spoken. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hey, he doesn't shame people or whip them into a frenzy. He doesn't make them feel guilty. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And you want to know what I've heard almost 100% of the time when people get serious about praying this prayer? They hear God speaking to them. And I want to encourage you to pray this prayer because Jesus said, to his disciples, this is not me speaking to you. You can read the words just like I can. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, it's his harvest. And he wants us to be involved in his harvest. Spurgeon said this, whenever you quote Charles Spurgeon, it's going to be rough. There are a lot of folks standing around in churches wearing suits, but they don't know how to use sickles. You know what a sickle is, right? It's what you use to cut down the wheat, to cut down the corn, to bring in the harvest. When we pray as Jesus commanded, we will see what he saw, we will feel what he felt, and we will do what he did. God will multiply our lives as we share in the great harvest that is already ripe. So let me encourage you to pray the Lord of the harvest. This is not a suggestion. This is Jesus commanding his disciples, not just the ones who were there on that day. This is recorded for posterity's sake. The scriptures are for us. Now, we've considered a lot of things this morning. We've considered a lot of issues. The issue of the the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage. The issue of the 12-year-old girl who was about to die and the issue that her father had in coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, come, please lay your hand on her. The issue of the two blind men, they were unable to see. They had no vision, but Jesus gave them vision. 
The mute demon-possessed man, what was his issue? He was possessed by a demon and he had no voice. But Jesus rebuked the demon, sent him away, and gave him his voice back. Jesus saw these people distressed, downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. That was their issue. They had no direction, no focus, no purpose. They didn't know what to do, where to go, who to follow. No one was ministering to the needs of their soul. But you see, Jesus is the good shepherd, according to John chapter 10. And according to 1 Peter 5, he is the great shepherd. Are you idle or on the sideline, and do you need to get involved with God's plan? I think we could ask the question after looking at all these issues this morning, what's my issue, what's your issue? Because as Jesus has demonstrated today, he can take care of a 12-year-old medical problem. He can take care of death. He can take care of a sick child. He can take care of blindness. He can take care of demons. He can take care of listless, lifeless people who have no hope, no focus, no vision. He can take care of our aimless wandering if we will come to him. You see, whatever my issue is, whatever your issue is, I assure you Jesus has the answer. Jesus has the solution. And I would say to you that the solution is Jesus. And so this morning, as we come to the table of the Lord together, if you know Christ, that's the table of the Lord. It's not communion for this church. It's communion for all those who know Christ. And so if you know the Lord this morning, as we come to the table, prepare your hearts, worship, cry out to God, let him take care of your issues. You Listen, as I, I speak, and I know this, I'm not, you know, I'm not a superstitious person, but Every one of us have issues, and I know the Holy Spirit is speaking to every person in here about your issue or your issues this morning. Whatever it is, soften your heart toward the Lord. Say yes to him, like those blind men did. Do you believe? Yeah. Yes, Lord. You can, do you believe I can take care of that? Yes, Lord. Because he can. You see, the question, question of will he so often does depend on whether we believe him or not. But thank God that even when we are weak and faithless, as the word says, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful to his children. And this morning, if you don't know Christ, and if you have a question in your heart as to whether or not you know Christ, then I would suggest to you that you don't. But if you don't know Christ, this is today. This is the opportunity. This is the time. Give your heart to the Lord. Just say yes to him. Say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. I don't know what it means. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'll follow you. Lord, I have fears. I have questions. That's okay. So does everybody who says yes to Christ. But those questions will get answered along the way. Jesus will answer you. You see, he took time with this woman. He took time with this dead girl. He took time with this family. He took time with these demon-possessed uh, the demon-possessed men, he took time with the blind men. And he'll take time for you. You see, you are not an interruption to Jesus. Never. He loves you. And if you need attention this morning from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's here to give it to you. So, Lord, thank you this morning. 
that you have the answer to every issue. And as you have spoken, as your word has ministered to us, Lord, you have been so faithful. You have been so gracious, Lord. Lord, move among us this morning and as we sing a song and prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table, may you move among us. May we remember your sacrifice. May we understand your love. May we afresh and anew, Lord, just recommit, rededicate ourselves to you. Lord, if there's been a, a coolness in our lives, then may you stoke the fire of passion this morning. And Lord, if there's any among us this morning or listening online or even later, would you touch their hearts, Lord? If they need to know you, if they've never given their heart to you, let this be the moment when they just say, yes, Lord. And may you come in and just in a flood, Lord, just give them love and hope and purpose like they've never known. Forgive their sins, heal their hearts. And Lord, so many of us, we have scars, we have physical scars, we have emotional scars, we have spiritual scars, we have questions. Lord, would you just bring the peace of God that surpasses understanding this morning to bear upon the hearts and the minds of your people as we wait upon you. And we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.